Aftershocks by Andrew James Chapter 12 A Growing Rift My mother is an amazing woman, and yet she is tragically difficult. All of that is subjective, of course, so I will do my best to elaborate. When I was just three years old, at her insistence, I learned to read. While most children were watching cartoons or playing with toys, I was attending class. Each day I would sit on my mother's lap in the living room, learning basic math and how to write my letters. My mother will argue and say that I was only two when I first began reading, but I find that tale a bit too Bobby Fisher. So I would rather assume an extra year and let the answer feel more certain. I remember my first lessons on reading and writing and math all too well. I remember them because I remember the praise my mother would heap on me at that early age when I first began to display any signs of intellect. I remember the feeling of overwhelming success and enthusiasm she had for me during those moments, and even then, as a small child, I was able to understand that she believed me to be somehow better, somehow superior from other children. At least that was how it felt then, and often still feels to this day. It was a very pervasive thought and a belief, and because it was instilled within me somewhat accidentally, it was not tempered by modesty or a humbleness, and so it was also a cause of great distress later in my life when I realized that the display of this unique quality did nothing to help endear me to others my own age. The idea that I was somehow superior was secondary to the nature of my mother's menstruations, which were driven by a need for her son to be infinitely successful perhaps in a way that she was not able to achieve herself. I never knew what drove my mother's obsession with my success, but only that she needed me to demonstrate signs of it as early as possible. At that young age, and then later, as a small child, until eventually I was a teenager, I instinctively knew that the way to my mother's affection was through a single-minded dedication to scholastic success. That has been a reinforced mindset in my life for as long as I can remember, and I imagine I will always possess that desire to make her proud through my work. The best example I have of this single-minded dedication was in those early days of learning to read and write. While sitting in the usual chair in our living room, I upon her lap, and a small side table next to the chair littered with pieces of paper graffitied with my attempts at perfection, I had become stumped by the number eight. There was something terribly difficult about writing the number eight. The almost concentric circles baffled my small hands, and I remained stuck, unable to go any further until I had it mastered. Indeed, that day I was forced to learn the number eight one way or another. I remember my mother's growing frustration building at my inability to write the number until eventually she removed me from her lap and ordered me into the backyard where I was to remain until I was certain I could perform the task. Once I was sure I had it figured out, I would be allowed back inside, but for now I was relegated to the backyard. To be fair, the backyard contained a wealth of excitement, including a decorative rock garden I was almost sure held the fossilized fingers and toes of long-dead dinosaurs, and a great red and blue swing set that had been there when we had moved in. This was not some terrifying jungle prison with swarms of man-eating insects. This was a three-year-old's paradise. And yet, I did not dig in the rock garden or swing on the swing. I paced, 
back and forth along the side of my house, out of sight of the kitchen window where my mother stood washing dishes. I walked back and forth, going over the figure eight in my head and waving my hand back and forth until I felt I had it figured out. I was desperate to get this right. I did eventually master the art, and of course I was praised by my mother, though I still feel that some sense of acute displeasure she had for me, not getting it right the first time. I was always anxious to please her. As I think about it now, I believe that much of my early success was nothing more than a desperate attempt at earning her praise. She was a strong woman, strong the way walls are strong, the way they are unmoving and unflinching and have no fear that maybe they don't need to be walls at all, but their purpose is their purpose and so they remain walls. Somewhere in her life she had been given the hope of success and brilliance, but it had either been ignored or dismissed long ago, and so now I was her dream. And like any dream, I had to be carefully and constantly groomed and manicured and cultivated so I could become real, so I could become realized. She expected great things of me, demanded them actually. I believe that her confidence in me created an image for both of us that we were desperate to see come true, the image of a child prodigy, and so we worked tirelessly together at times toiling over her dreams for me that one day we may reach the pinnacle of what she demanded. At first, we bonded over the effort. As a small child, your mother is the center of your life, and so your gratitude towards the unity of your life you share. But as you grow, as your world begins to broaden, you begin to separate yourself from that shared life, and you explore your own destiny. I did not explore my identity so much as I ran as fast as I could towards it, or maybe ran away from the other imposed one. You see, my mother's obsession, the only word that truly clarifies it accurately, with making me into a child prodigy, carried with it the weight of loneliness and isolation. This manifested itself over time until I was so desperate to be free of the relationship we shared that I fought back sometimes screaming and crying, and at other times by misbehaving and intentionally failing. I would sabotage my schoolwork purposefully, failing simple quizzes in an effort to prove that I was not who she demanded I be. I wanted to be like the other children, who seemed to hold more value in athletic exercise than scholastic achievement. I wanted to be strong and fast and able to throw and punch and kick and everything else I saw the other children doing, they would crowd around one another speaking of sports and games and abilities that I didn't understand or recognize, but I wanted to. I wanted to be at the center of their crowd, to be appreciated and cared about and welcomed. Instead, I would stand at the edge, the fringes, hoping I could find a way in but never being allowed to join. The rift I felt between myself and the other children was carried home each day and then dropped in the lap of my mother. I wanted to blame her for the confused feelings and loneliness I felt. I wanted her to know that she wanted for me made me different. It made me unique. It made me hated. Hated was a strong word. Instead, I hated myself for not being able to fit in the way I wanted. I desperately wanted to change, and so the rift between my mother and I grew as I got older. A resentment formed that held all the things we demanded of one another, but never shared. 
I am my mother's son, and so I built a wall opposite the one that she had constructed, and the space between us was full of all the unkind things we never said to one another. But neither of us budged. Neither of us was willing to give in to the other. I refused her demands at perfection, and she refused to allow me to become part of what I saw as the real world. Her grip tightened more firmly around me as I tried to fight back. One of us had to give. Let's keep going. I was speaking again. Well, it felt like I was speaking out loud, only that wasn't entirely accurate. My voice had become a disconnected third party, a narrator of what I saw. It lacked the awareness to be considered real speech, and it came out haltingly and fragmented, as if the language itself was a struggle. My conscious mind had shifted inwards to what I saw before me in my memories, leaving the leftover part of me that was in Chad's office in a catatonic state. I was a husk. The voice that spoke remained disconnected from me, as though it was coming from somewhere else or someone. It was as though some third-party voice was putting each memory into words, and so, because it wasn't really me speaking, I didn't need to feel the same sense of discomfort that came from the sharing of such personal details. The thoughts of that day in South Florida when I was nine years old and my body and my mind and my life had been changed in a few short hours until what was left of me was irrevocably changed from what it had been earlier that day were thoughts and memories that had been so played out in the theater of my mind that now, almost 30 years later, they had become numb. They were blank in a sense. Not devoid of color or life, but blank in that all feeling had been scrubbed from each memory so that what remained was the picture and sound. No real connection to those images remained. So disconnected was I that they appeared as someone else's memories, as though they could not have happened to me. I remembered them, yes, but it felt like remembering something I'd seen, not something I had in fact gone through and yet they still carried with them the weight of their occurrence. Not there in the memory, but more in the result of the memory. They had manifested scars that were still visible, but like any scar, they were forgotten until I was forced to see them and notice them once more upon my skin. In doing so, I remembered the bitter moments that had caused each one. So tell me about what happened when you got home. What happened after you got back, after you left his house that day? When I got home that day, she wasn't there. She'd gone looking for me, driven around the neighborhood, I guess, looking for me. I don't know what time it was or how late I was. I don't know if I ever checked the time. She'd been freaking out, I guess, worried that something had happened to me. The irony is something did, but when she came home, there was a long pause in which the silence was filled by a deep recollection. These are going to be some of the hardest moments. Chad shifted in his seat and continued to look at me. These will be hard to talk about. Just go where it takes you. When you think of how things in your life change you and make you who you are, it feels strange to possess such confusion towards those events. How can you hate something and yet love something at the same time? I was reminded of a lecture I heard on particle physics in which a given quantum state could be in two places at once. Is that right? Maybe that wasn't quite right. It was something like that. 
I knew I hated the things that happened and the people who had perpetrated such horrors against me, but at the same time, I didn't. How was that possible to be in two places at once? Nothing demonstrated this sense of misunderstanding like the memories of my mother. A mother defines the very soul of familial love. My relationship with her was strained. But what family relationship didn't have its struggles? I know those struggles that each of my friends' families' lives carried with them. There was alcoholism and the unkind words that came from a mother who drank just enough to be too much and who never apologized. There were parents lost to divorce and the resulting dystopia of the shared second family. There were the overbearing parents who could never let their son live for himself. Helicopter parenting, they called it. Then there was the family long gone, a mother and father dead years past, and the memory of them fading. No, I thought, there was no such thing as a perfect family. The thought gave me breathing room as I considered the reality of my childhood, and my mind traversed the length of memories, trying to land on one, just one, that would tell me what I wanted to know. The same question that I had challenged Chad with on day one when I had come back after two years away and demanded help. It was the same question that plagued me every night as I lay in bed, wishing I could go back in time and live in my memory before all of this began. That infinite question of why. Why had all of this happened? Why did I feel so helpless in those months leading up to the event that had been the catalyst of my own thoughts and my own destructions? Why had I been unable to control those thoughts? Where did it all come from within me? And most of all, why had I been made so perfectly but for that one flaw that created the monster some now saw me as? I knew I wasn't that monster. I knew who I really was, or I hoped I was. Even if I was an unfinished product, like God had stopped working just before finishing me, and instead of releasing a completed version, I had been let loose with a glaring fault that God hoped no one noticed. But people had noticed. It turned out to be a bigger glitch than anyone could have foreseen, so now I was here. When she came home, she was so angry. Because I scared her. I'm sure, because she hadn't known where I was. There weren't cell phones back then, remember, and we hadn't been living there that long. I don't remember how long, but it wasn't long enough that she was comfortable with me walking around by myself yet. Even though our neighborhood was really nice, I mean, super nice, the neighborhood outside, ours, wasn't. We were on an island, sort of. So she panicked. And when she got home, it was bad. I mean, really bad. There were a lot of times she hit me, and tons of times she called me names or screamed at me. It used to scare me. I remember a few years later in middle school, my math teacher actually called my home to talk to my mom and ask why I was so scared of her. But this has to be one of the worst times. I can see her standing behind the kitchen counter. It was an island, and I had my back to the wall that led to the bedroom. It was like I was ready to run, you know? And she was just screaming and whipping things off the counter at me. Not really heavy things that could hurt me, but things she could find and throw. And the worst part was that she had no idea. She had no idea what had happened that day. I mean, if she looked at me a little bit, noticed that I had bloody knees or that I was hunched over, maybe it would have made a difference. I, I don't know. I doubt it. I ran around in the woods non-stop back then, so bloody knees weren't much of an indicator. She had no way of knowing what had happened, but the point is she didn't try to know either. 
And what would have happened if she'd known, he thought. Would he have told her? Would he have told her what had happened to him? He knew the answer, of course not. He wasn't going to tell her what happened, but that wasn't the point. The point is that she was the parent, and parents are supposed to know the questions to ask, to be able to be there for their children. She hadn't asked questions or tried to know she had just been angry. There should be some instinctual parental feeling that tells you your child is in trouble. The problem was that the damage was already done long before that day, and now, standing here in the living room, it was already too late. The world that had created the events of that day had not occurred suddenly overnight. The world had been created over weeks, months of his life, until it was no longer discernible from the world it should have been. It was only the world as he knew it now. Each day that the school teachers had ignored the scared child on the playground, they had inadvertently made this world for him. Each day that he had gone unnoticed by the administrators who were oblivious to his misery, had allowed this to happen. These moments had created this day. The very children themselves had a hand in its creation. They were so young, but they were old enough to know their words hurt, and the calluses that had formed in their hearts and souls was just thick enough to stop them hearing or feeling his pleas as their torment continued relentlessly. They had created this day. His father, whom he loved and who he knew could stop all of this, had he been there, had he... He had created this world, but the same work that had dragged them to Florida to begin with had now dragged him away again, and a few days of the weekend were all that he saw of him, if he came home at all, and his absence had allowed this world to form. His father could have stopped it, but once again, he didn't know any more than his mother knew. They knew he was unhappy, sure. They knew he was being teased and made fun of, but did they know the loneliness that was in his heart? Did they know what he felt each day when he woke up and knew, with all his being and all his heart, that he was different from the others, and so they would never accept him, no matter what he did or how hard he tried? She was sort of working herself up to it. The moment she came around the kitchen counter, and before I could get away, she was there, and she had grabbed me and was trying to lean me over so she could reach my bare legs. She was smacking at them over and over again, slapping them with her hands. I tried to twist and fight to get away from her. God, it fucking hurt. Not just where her hands were hitting me, but that it was where his hands had been. She was smacking and slapping where he had been. And she had no idea how much that hurt because it was such an invasion. And I wanted to cry, but I was holding myself back. Instead, I was trying to escape, and I did. I managed to get away, and I turned to get to my room, but she grabbed me again, and she said, Come back. I'm not done hitting you yet. She actually said that. She laughed about that once. I think it was to her friends or someone. I don't remember. Was this soon after it happened, he asked. He looked sad. He'd been looking sad more often lately when the stories and the memories emerged. No, it was a while later, maybe years later, I don't remember exactly, but she laughed about it. I was definitely older because I tried to laugh too, to show her it was okay and that I didn't hold a grudge about it, but I did. Go with that. Keep going. God, if he knew all the memories... They had just become numb, though. 
the memories of that day, all the days, the countless days and countless memories that all blurred and blended together to form an absolute collage of misery. There were days of being slapped and smacked and hit. There were days of being screamed at and the names that came with it. Words that weren't supposed to be said in school, but they were said at home. Most of all, though, there was the memories of fear. The memories of being afraid of what would make that day turn bad. What was it he would do that day that would set her off and make her angry at him? They were numb little moments of evidence that he had decided long ago would not define him. And yet they had, hadn't they? They had defined him more than he could ever know or explain. The feelings of weakness he had, the confidence that had been torn apart, the feeling of inadequacy and longing for love and care had all permeated his existence now to this very moment. The fear of being wanted was almost as strong as the longing for it. The compulsion he felt at times could be too much. It could be overbearing. There were so many memories now that leaked into his mind when he thought about how much he had desperately tried not to allow any of this to make him different. But it all had. God, how it had changed him and hurt him. It felt like there were two lives because of it. There was the life he had been destined for, the life he knew he could still create if it wasn't for this other life constantly pulling him another direction. And what about that other life? It was a totally different path. It was full of everything wrong. Even in the moments where things were right, the other life would meet up again and pull him back down. And so he felt all of the time that at any moment, both of his lives could collide and merge into one life and be polluted by one another. And the worst thing yet, he never knew which of the two paths he was on. It was a terrifying guessing game. Just look at all the good memories. Aren't they constantly contaminated by the bad ones? Each good moment overcast and shadowed by a memory of what went wrong. Each moment of his life had some toxic event that had threatened the beauty of it. And so there was nothing that could be called pure or lovely. Everything was mired in pain that he had desperately tried to erase, but it hadn't worked. What happened after that, Chad asked. I don't remember how, but now I'm in the car with her. We're driving to karate. She's next to me and she's still so angry and I can't stop crying. I guess I gave up trying to fight it by that point. I literally can't stop. I'm so sad and so lonely and I don't have the words to define it. So I'm just trying to get it all out of me. Do you know what that's like to feel so broken and so torn apart that you want to be unmade? You can't define the pain, but secretly the pain becomes the only thing you can feel. So you dig your fingernails into your face and squeeze your head with your hands and try as hard as you can to physically release it from yourself. That's what I was doing. Squeezing my body like the end of a toothpaste roll when you need to get that last little bit out. I was squeezing myself trying to get it all out. You know, they put me in karate because I was being bullied and they thought karate would make me more confident. I don't know. God, what a joke. Confidence. None. There was none. 
There wasn't a drop of confidence in me. Everything I had was faked. Probably from that moment forward, I faked every single iota of confidence until it became part of me and I could no longer tell the difference between the reality of self and the idea of it that I desperately wanted to portray. That's what made it so unattractive. When you pretend something, it becomes theater, and the theatricality of my confidence became too much, and people knew it. It was boisterous and obnoxious and a terrible little pretense. After a time, I couldn't distinguish between confidence and condescension, and so I opted for the latter and made things easier if I pushed people away first, if they never got to know me. I could decide they hated me because I was the asshole. I was the arrogant prick. That was easier than if they didn't like me because I was a loser or a waste of time or unfunny or unattractive waste of a person. Yeah, an asshole was much better. That was my choice. Except it did work sometimes. For the women, it worked well, if only briefly, and there were many of them. My quest for false confidence in the theater that ensued had been displayed most obviously in my appearance. Once I realized that maybe, just maybe, I could look the part of someone that mattered, someone that people liked, I had clung to that obsession with a fierce grip. It was the most perfect costume. I dressed and looked and carried myself the way that I must to counter the disdain I felt within. My look first became my pride, then my obsession, until eventually it became narcissism. It carried itself well, but beneath the veneer was a cracked, destroyed fresco of myself that, like Dorian Gray, I kept hidden and locked from the world. But the woman, they only saw the veneer. They saw what I wanted them to see until the conquest of one, then another, fell to the theater of my exterior. Occasionally, some realized the truth of what I was, but most were gone before that moment ever occurred. Most of them were broken little moments to me that were meant to fill the bottomless well of my need. They were like ornaments, each a distraction for me that helped adorn my memories with some feeling of longing and care, glittering and sparkling little mementos of my life. Each moment was an abuse, though. While I should have been busy realizing the truth of myself, I was driving myself further from that truth with a parade of women that served only to inflate me and root me in a fantasy. No matter how much, they never truly repaired me. Of course they didn't. How could they have? They were constructs in my fantasy. They were no more aware of who I was than I was myself. They never truly gave me what I wanted, and in the end, despite my own promises to myself and to them, they were discarded with arrogance. She turned the car around eventually. I think she realized after a bit that there was no way she could drop me off at karate looking like that. I mean, I couldn't pull it together. I want to believe it's because she realized how much of a mess I was. She wanted me to feel better, but I think it was probably because she knew that it would look pretty bad if I showed up in public looking like that. I mean, I was, what, nine, ten? No, there's no way I could have pulled it together. Think of that. I mean, honestly, think of that day. Beaten at school because I was different, small, a loser, whatever we want to call it. Then I go to the one person who I thought would make me feel better, and instead he does... Well, you know what he did. 
Then he kicks me out, and I go home to a mother who screams at me and smacks me in all the same places he hurt me because she had been worried about where I was. I mean, that's a bad day. That's a bad fucking day. But what you have to know is it wasn't an isolated event. It's not like she hit me that day, and the rest of the time, things were great. They weren't, not at all. I mean, there was a time a few years later when we lived in another state when we had to go see a therapist because of our relationship. I think we went to three or four therapists because of our relationship, and it was always, always the same thing. If I was a better kid, then she wouldn't be so angry with me. If I was a better kid, then she would stop screaming or calling me names or hitting me. But honestly, what was wrong with me? I wasn't a bad kid. I was miserable and alone and I had no friends and I was tiny and unathletic, but I was a good kid. I mean, I was a straight A student for a lot of my life. I had perfect everything. I think the proudest day of her life was when I graduated grade school that year in Florida. I was on stage with so many awards that the principal handing them out laughed when I went up there for the 10th or 11th time and said, you again. I mean, I was perfect. But it was always my fault when we went to therapy. If I could just be better, get better grades, stop talking back, she could stop screaming at me. It's like an abused spouse who says they brought it on themselves, only I didn't believe that, so I started fighting back. A few years later, after I moved from Florida to a new place and life had become, if only marginally, better, but still my father had left again. Only shortly after we arrived and I had been alone once more with my mother, I had fought back. I fought back one day in the bedroom when she had attacked me again, her arms swinging back and forth like a pendulum, striking me over and over again. I'd fought back. I'd raised my arms and warded off each blow the way I'd been shown in my karate class. The classes she had made me attend, I had raised my arms up and assumed a defensive stance and I tucked my chin down like I'd been taught, but I kept my hands balled tightly into little fists. That evening she had called my father overseas and claimed I had hit her. She claimed I had assaulted her. She claimed I had struck her repeatedly, and that following weekend when my father had returned home and demanded we all speak together as a family, she had lifted her arms up and shown him the bruises. They were decorating her forearms. They were light and red, but they were there. Off-color marks on the center of her forearm. How did I explain that the bruises were from me? They were from where her arms had struck against my raised fists in defense. I had never swung my hands, only desperately tried to prevent any of her strikes from landing. I'd left the table where they all sat in disgust and I hid in my room until my father had come to find me and tell me he agreed, he knew. It was okay. That was the last time she ever hit me. I don't know if I told her she would never hit me again or if that incident just made it clear she wasn't going to hit me again. I think she realized I was too big for that now. There were going to be prices to her assaults, so I think she stopped there. I've come to peace with it now. I don't really know how to explain it other than I don't carry any of it anymore. I, not like I did. I used to hate her for it. 
but it's been years. And I think once I left, once I got out of the house and away from her, things improved between us. Now it's not easy, but we're better. We actually do okay. I mean, she frustrates me because she replaced her anger with some sort of ignorance and stubbornness about life. And it's really hard to manage, but I don't feel it. I don't feel like the same anger and pain over the memories, the name calling, the attacks. It just feels like she was an angry person. And I took the brunt of it at times. I don't think it's fair, but I don't blame her for it. And she never hit me again after that day.